Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth. This is Season 5, Episode 10, The New Stories, with Rusty Tennant. Rusty is an actor and director working as the artistic director of Fuse Theater Ensemble and the technical director at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. They are also the producing artistic director of the Outright Theater Festival, which is a celebration of queer contributions to theater. It's held every year in Portland. Rusty's work does focus on the queer canon and also on original solo shows and looking at classics through a contemporary lens. I hope you get a chance to check out some of the shows that they're referencing throughout this episode at FuseTheaterEnsemble.com. I admire so much the resilience indie theater spaces have, and that resilience is quite evident in this conversation with Rusty. You'll hear them listing just a handful of the many art jobs they've had over the years. And that kind of dogged persistence is really what we need right now as the entire industry of theater attempts to pivot and reinvent itself once again. Rusty's passion shines so brightly here. If you love theater, or if you've been curious about how or if theater is surviving through COVID, I think you'll love this episode. Here's Rusty. My name is Rusty Tennant. I use they, them pronouns. I identify as genderqueer. I moved to Portland in 2007 and have been producing theater here since then. My entire background, my entire life has been producing theater since I was in high school, I suppose. And uh, I graduated with 48 kids in a small town called Weberville, Michigan. And uh, I, we didn't have a theater program, but I wasn't standing for that. And so my senior year, I forced them to let us stage a couple of plays in our cafeteria. Um, so. I've been producing theater since then. I went to Michigan State, got a bachelor's in uh, theater, uh, spent some about seven years in New York City after that, producing theater, acting in theater, and producing television. I produced some of the world's worst talk television and some TV, uh, some uh, jobs at MTV as well, which were really, really awesome. You might have heard about a little thing called 9-11. I lost a dear friend in the flight that went down in uh, Pennsylvania, Flight 93. Mm. And my brother called me and he said, you know, when when your backyard turns into the front line, get out. (laughs) I had been, you know, I'd done the New York thing for a bit at that stage of the game and was kind of tired of traveling the country (laughs) just to pay rent in New York, (laughs) which is what I was doing a lot as an actor. I spent two years on the road. Which introduced me to a lot of different places, and I was like, I don't, you know, in, in going on the road, I learned that I didn't actually necessarily want to stay in New York for the rest of my life, um, and I kind of saw it as a second college after a while, and so uh, 9-11 happened, and I decided let's move to New Orleans, which when I was on tour was... Uh, for obvious reasons, one of my favorite destinations that we would land in, and they would always give us a weekend in New Orleans when we were on tour, and it was just the best. Um, I'd also had some friends who had uh, kind of serendipitously made their way down to uh, New Orleans and had involvement uh, in some of the small schools down there, some of the schools that are down there. 
I decided to move someplace and then get an MFA there. Whether or not it was my best choice, there's pluses and minuses to it all, but uh, uh, I moved down there and uh, got my MFA. I lived down there for about five and a half, six years. And two weeks after I got my MFA, Hurricane Katrina hit. For me, the real harm, like, yeah, I lost some things in a flood and that sort of stuff, but the real harm was that I immediately found myself in Dallas. You evacuate thinking you're coming back a day or at the most two days later, right? So we evacuated and I was on, I was working in a gay bar. It was about to be Southern Decadence weekend, which if you're playing your game right, you can make thousands of dollars. I had just graduated with my MFA and I was actually planning to move to England, Stratford-upon-Avon, England, and get a second MFA, a master's degree at the Shakespeare Institute. My life in Shakespeare is long and storied. It starts with the fact that my mother was born on the day that Shakespeare was born on. I was introduced to Shakespeare at a very young age. I have studied Shakespeare very, very rigorously my whole life. I personally believe that Shakespeare is part of the queer canon. You do, if you're not reading Shakespeare with a queer eye, you're actually not getting Shakespeare. And if you need any more proof than Twelfth Night, I can give it to you. I can find it. It's in every play. So, and the sonnets. Oh my God, the sonnets. They're very queer. They're, they're, they're actually, and that I wrote a piece about that, a couple pieces, a piece that has evolved into many pieces, but if we would just teach the sonnets for what they are, which is queer, genderqueer love. We would give so many kids a window into the fact that they are actually, they exist and they've existed for centuries. They take them out of the context of the sonnet. It erases the queerness out of them, definitely, but it also sometimes just completely distorts the meanings. There are sonnets where, where Shakespeare's character, the poet, is painfully agonizing over the love of this person, this boy, this young boy, referred to many times in the piece. It's not in question. And people have taken those exact sonnets and ripped them out of order and out of their context, and now they've turned into things you hear at weddings. I end up in Dallas, and you know, they tell us, they're telling us that we're not gonna be able to be back for like, at that time, like, months and i didn't i had a garbage bag and my dog and garbage bag because i was working at the bar until the last moment hoping that southern decadence would happen so that i could make the thousands of dollars that i needed to get to england and so i made a choice that i needed to address the moment and i needed to get a job because i didn't have any in, i was a bartender i didn't have any influx, uh, uh, income and i certainly didn't have a savings so i took a job uh, teaching at collin county college in plano great job position was cut after the year, first year. Um, but what that did is it kind of solidified that I needed to stay in Dallas for that year. I couldn't go then study. And then Dallas turned into a job in Vegas. Vegas, then that job got cut and that turned into me moving up here because I had met my husband and we were like, all right, I'm gonna try Portland. Then I spent a year as, uh, as a master carpenter at Artist Rep. Then I got the job down in back in Louisiana for a couple years teaching. Then I came back up, and then I've been with Fuse since then. What I'm doing in this play that we're producing right now, The God Cluster, which is in place of what was going to be The Pursuit of Happiness, which is another play by Ernie LaJoy, is I'm trying to reconnect with the thing that I fell in love with first, which was performing. So I'm back on stage. Haven't done that in a few years. I haven't done realism on stage in over a decade at least, but so maybe 2007. And I gotta be honest with you, it's been really successful. My favorite times of my days right now are spent in that rehearsal room performing the play that we're performing. It's definitely making me remember what I fell in love with. It's, the, it's a puzzle. 
It's the puzzle part of it. Like Ernie is a big fan of puzzles and Ernie writes in kind of puzzles. But I also realize that like what I enjoy about the process of acting at least, and I think it transfers into directing to a certain degree too, is it is a puzzle. It's almost like one of those puzzles that you're given or one of those escape rooms that you're given where you're not given all of the information. You're just given words on a page and those words are very easily distorted or very easily changed in terms of intention. The world itself is very, that's why plays are so interesting that way because we see Hamlet 50 different times throughout our life but never is the production the same production. Like figuring out what the puzzle is and how that puzzle works with this group, this particular group in the room. And I'm interested to see what happens when I get back in front of an audience with this. We open May 20th. The people who've come to see it thus far make me feel very awkward when they talk to me about how good I did. But we'll see what happens when we get an audience. It's certainly an appeasing part of the process for people to, to appreciate what you've done. I hear a lot of bravado about the endurance of theater for centuries upon centuries and the fact that it has always existed and it's lived through plagues before and i get that because you know theater people don't they get we get kicked around a lot and so like we have to build up this kind of like bravado or this thick skin so i'm i'm not trying to bemoan that because i myself possess that in many ways but i also i'm a pluralist in almost everything i do and so like the other part of me is like yeah but Theater has never experienced a plague of this nature that decimated theater. Theater was the first thing to go away and almost the last thing to return. You can even question whether it's returned yet. We have never been here. This is uncharted territory and to act like it's not seems really naive to me. We have never been coming out of a plague that decimated the art form and made it obsolete. That should give us a clue as to where we are placed in the importance of how the society progresses. We are a frivolous art form in this day and age as it stands. The other thing is, is we have never tried to come out of a plague when theater wasn't the main form of education and entertainment. Even the 19, you know, 19 plague or what, uh, the, the, the Spanish flu. Television had not come about. Radio only partially. We didn't have films and movies that everybody went to. We certainly didn't have the internet, TikTok and Facebook and all that other stuff. So to act like it's the same and theater will just have to naturally survive, there are so many things out there right now that people can do instead of locking themselves in a small room with a mask on. We're at a crisis point and to act like we're not seems really, really arrogant to me or at least, like I said, there's a bravado to this that I can't get behind. We're already struggling. We were struggling going into this. The art form itself wasn't functioning in the ways that capitalism wants us to function. And now we've all had two years of not producing. We've all been basically just living off from grants and whatever we can to get by. And we're trying to pull people back in and we're doing this dance of like, we can keep you safe with checking vaccination cards and putting on masks, but the vaccination cards can obviously be very easily changed or distorted or whatever they, we, they wanted to do if they wanted to get into our thing. And the more and more science we learn about masks, the more and more we realize, particularly with these variants, there's very little efficacy. One of the reasons we're doing this play right now, The God Cluster, is because 
This is a play about now. It's a play about a pandemic. It's 2029, but we reference COVID. We reference the HIV AIDS epidemic. We talk about these sorts of things in this play, and it's a play that needs to be happening now. So I haven't given up all hope. We have an obligation to hold a mirror up to society. You know, if it didn't exist before Shakespeare, Shakespeare mandated that for us. That's that's what theater does. And theater obviously has, I mean, at Reed, it is part of what we teach. It has political power. It is a political act. Art in itself is a political act. So I get all of that and I am right there with you on the fight, but I'm also, I have that other part of my brain that is like, it ain't just like we can walk out and expect theater to survive through this. We've got some real work that has to happen for us to be able to come out of this on the, the plus end. And I think that some of those things were talked about in terms of how we would change coming out of the pandemic. And I think we've forgotten about some of those things in just a year, year and a half. I see that work happening. As long as it, as it isn't token and it's just like this year and next year or whatever and it actually becomes, but that's gonna be proven in time. So the play, The God Cluster, A Queer Pandemic Revenge Tragedy by Ernie LaJoy, it's a new play. We were slated to do The Pursuit of Happiness, uh, which was a musical that we were slated to do pre-COVID that actually centers a trans character um, in the narrative. And we are still going to do that musical. We just, we chose to once again postpone Pursuit of Happiness. We were supposed to be doing it this year. We're now gonna do it hopefully next year. But our concern was we have a very small space and musicals project and it feels questionable to ask people to come into this space to even watch a play. In terms of the musical, I just felt, you know what? It's not like it, the story has to be told now. It will be just as good next year. And so let's set it aside. Let's be smart about this. Let's set it aside. We'd also took an, taken a, a pretty sizable financial hit from postponing the queers. And so that made me think if we're going to get a musical halfway through into rehearsals or into tech rehearsal and then have to cancel it or postpone like we did with the queers. That's a lot more money that we would have to lose. And so it just so happened that while um, we have been doing the pre-production for Pursuit of Happiness, Ernie has also been writing his first full-length play. Ernie generally writes musicals. And the play was about Ernie's experience over the past two years, which is different than my experience and different than your experience, I assume, because Ernie went to work every day and, as I say, killed people. Ernie and I have a very, very dark sense of humor with one another, and if anybody ever hangs around with us, they catch on to it pretty quickly. But what that means is Ernie was a, a ICU respiratory therapist. There's an enormous amount of trauma that our, our first responders had to undergo in that way. And so giving voice to a first responder seems like the most important thing we could do coming out of this pandemic. End of discussion. Ernie, you have a play about this? Let's produce it. We'll go ahead and postpone that cute musical for a year. We're going to do something that, as Peter Brook would call is very immediate. What this piece does is it creates an enormous amount of discussion. Everybody who's read it, everyone who's seen it thus far, talks about it. I won't give away too much and we won't post a ton about it because quite honestly, anything that we would post about this play, Facebook algorithms are going to flag and not let it go anywhere because we are talking about the pandemic. We are talking about vaccination. We are talking about people choosing to not be unvaccinated. We are talking about how religion played an enormous component in all of this. We're talking about how religion set itself up against medical workers in this past two years. It's a lot, but it's also a really funny play. Like Ernie managed to write this 
queer pandemic revenge tragedy, which it is. And it's still packed full of humor, which Ernie is as well. But all of the discussions are in it. All of the discussions that honestly we need to be having right now. And what I also love about it is it doesn't make a decision for you. I think what it does is it says that that bad guys are all around, number one, um, and that bad is a, is a perspective. Who's a hero, who's a villain is the big question of this play. And particularly with the main doctor, Dr. Lee, who's played uh, by Tanya Joan Miller, who usually does solo work, solo shows. Dmay Roberts, who has worked oh, with Theater Diaspora for years, created and founded that. I went to Dmay and uh, we were looking for particularly someone who was East Asian for the role of Dr. Lee. And uh, she sent me to Tanya and Tanya is a powerhouse. And exactly what we needed for this role. On top of Tanya, uh, we, we have Alexandria Hunter who was brought to us by our director, our amazing director, Mallory Mirashrafi. One of the things that Ernie and I knew right away is Muslim is a big topic in this play. Um, one of the characters is Muslim. And you know, I mean, I'm genderqueer, but I certainly present as male. Ernie and I are some, certainly walk around with a lot of white male privilege. And so we knew that like we needed someone of color, a person of color, hopefully someone who had ties in the Muslim world to be able to come in and direct this. And so I reached out to Mallory and Mallory was interested. There's no punches pulled by a couple of the characters about the insidious nature of religion on our world. And it really, it dives into the question about like, you know, how a, a very, very leftist brain interprets that. A brain like ours that wants people to have the freedom to choose and express themselves how they want to. We want people to be able to live and think and create how they want to create, but, do we end up creating apologist systems or do we end up creating pathways for people to then oppress us, especially if we're minorities? I, I know Ernie and I know me. We're more along the lines of, of the particular characters in, here, in the play that are like, we don't need any of this anymore. But what I think he's done is he's spoken with Mallory a lot. Mallory has greatly informed that part of the play. He's really invested in this idea of making sure that he doesn't write, even though he's an atheist and he believes very strongly in atheist principles, he didn't write a Muslim that became two-dimensional. We were unaware of, of some of the tropes that exist in the Muslim world. So having Mallory in the room, Ernie and Mallory working as closely as they have has really created, I think, a nice, well-rounded piece. One of my favorite pieces ever is Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. It takes place in two different time periods, and, and then by the end, the present-day time period is investigating a mystery in the past. And by the end of the play, both time periods exist on stage at the same time. And it's super, super convoluted, and it's super confusing. And at the end of the play, you actually don't know who committed the crime or who did the thing. And everybody leaves the theater arguing about who did it. And I'm not saying that anybody's gonna leave this arguing about who did it, but it's more about like the discussions that are gonna happen about like uh, mandatory vaccinations. The uh, Christian apologists or, or religious apologists, you know, neoliberalism. Um, and its place in that sort of stuff. So super important, super immediate production to be putting on right now. And so how does theater do this? 
we make plays that are about now and we stop producing plays that are from a world that is now changed. And if we do want to produce the classics, which I am obviously in fan of, I'm a, I'm a Shakespeare freak, produce them through that lens of the world has now changed. One of the things that were echoed really loudly to me in the during the pandemic was the fact that we needed new plays to reflect our new world. Part of why we don't cast people of color and don't cast women is because those plays just didn't exist in the canon. So we need to create Create that world. We need to write that world, and so we have been very focused on that. I mean, queers was in, the queers was an original work coming out of the pandemic. We only have in the next year and a half one published play that we're thinking about doing, and that's Our Town. So we're really trying to number one invest in the new stories, be a place for that. We now have the home on uh, Hawthorne. We took over the space that Defunct was in. The festival itself is, the God Cluster is the feature production of the festival. Um, we also have two workshops that are happening. Plan V, the, no, the Cult of Pussy Worship, I'm sorry, which is by Eleanor O'Brien, is workshopping here before it goes to the Edinburgh Fringe, Edinburgh Fringe Festival this summer. And then Ajay Tripathi's Great White Gets Off, a race play, is also being workshopped. It literally is about race, play, and sex. Both those shows are, are short, hour-long uh, pieces. And then we're doing readings of two emerging works. American Girl, which is by Mickey Gillette, who wrote The Queers. It is a, uh, a docudrama about uh, a person, local person, actually a person from Vancouver, Nikki, who uh, was murdered, a transgender woman who was murdered. So it's a docudrama about that. And then the second play we're doing a reading of is by festival favorite C. Julian Jimenez. And uh, they wrote a play that no one will produce. And so they're like, will you do it? Uh, and it's called Ronald Reagan Murdered My Mentors. It's about growing up in my generation and and having that generation above us decimated by HIV and very few of them around and how many of those mentors we lost. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece, uh, very poetic. Um, at any rate, both of those are readings that we're doing uh, each on individual Sundays. I think it's the 5th and the 12th. Uh, they happen at noon in our space. The good thing is you can come for the reading and then stay for the show afterwards as well. And the show's not long, about a 90 minute show. This is our 10 year anniversary for the Outright Theater Festival. This is a decade of, of us doing this, and so it's a big deal for us to, to have gotten here. You know, theater always takes a bit of risk, and it always takes a bit of bravery. Usually that is on the people on stage, usually, that are having to do that. But now we know that with audiences, too, there's a little bit of risk and there's a little bit of bravery. I encourage people to support small theater as much as they can in this day and age. Yes, the Keller and the Broadway shows are amazing, and we want them to continue to come in, but you're much less likely to run into a vector in a house of 40 people than you are in a house of a thousand to two thousand people. I offer that as a another way to conceive the idea of small theater in your brain and so that would be you know the big thing is like just give it a shot give it a shot we do everything we, we have a HEPA filter Peppa the HEPA filter we call her she's the newest <laughs> member of the ensemble um, we have a HEPA filter that's going the whole time we do everything we can to make it as safe as we possibly can for you we do ask people to mask throughout the show and, and those sorts of things. So yeah, I would encourage people to just check out some live theater again. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was sponsored by Oregon Humanities and the Oregon Community Foundation. Written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Ellie Swope. 
If you have any questions or feedback about the show, we're happy to hear it. Please feel free to reach out at any time at futureprairie.com or on social media at futureprairie.com.